Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this message series, we are looking at what God has restricted. That's what the R is for, what God has restricted and why. Today, we look at uh, the restrictions that God has placed on sex. Now, God's restrictions on sex, I think, are probably the best known and most contentious of all of the categories of restrictions. And this has led to the false notion that God, for some reason, is opposed uh, to sex in general and any fun in particular. And nothing really could be further from the truth. God himself uh, created sex. In fact, sex is number two and number three on the list of the first three things that God says about us as human beings. Here's what's said about us in Genesis 1. Verses 27 through 28 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. So here are the three things that are said about us. Number one, we are created in the image of God. That makes us unique in all of creation. All of creation is value, but but there's something very unique about us as, as humankind. Number two, we are either sexually a male or sexually a female. And number three, God says, so go have sex. That's what he says, be fruitful and increase in number. That's the third thing that he says. Now, God then does follow these words by putting some restrictions on sex. And the question is, why? I mean, if the goal is, as he says here, be fruitful and increase in number, then why not let us procreate like the rest of the animal kingdom? I mean, the only restriction that animals have on on their sexual activity, on their procreation efforts, is just biological. That's the only restriction they have, physical. But for us, sex has always been about something much more than just biology. It is biology, but it means a whole lot more to us than just the physical act of procreation. And that's why even without the Bible, our sexual vocabulary is full of moral language. Just listen to us talk about it. There's moral language in everything we say about sex. Now, the word gray in the title of the book that I'm using, in the title of this message, is not about the color gray or even Christian gray, one of the main characters of the book. It is clearly a moral reference to the sexual boundaries that are being experimented with and crossed in the story, the the fiction story in this book. Now, I've not read this book. I don't plan to read this book. I've not seen the movie. But it is well known for its explicitly erotic scenes of bondage and dominance and sadomasochistic sex. Christian Gray is a young business magnet that gets involved in a sexual relationship with a college graduate. Now, his last name is Gray because Gray is the moral middle ground between black, what is wrong, and white, what is right. And his first name is Christian, not by accident. That's because the whole book really is a swipe against the black and white nature of what the Bible says on this topic. So today, we're going to address three questions that God uh, has put on these restrictions on sex. Three questions about this restriction. Number one, why is sex such a big deal? And number two, where is the line? How do we navigate some of the, the gray areas in the sexual arena? And number three, is there hope for me? Now, the reason I say this is because the amount of shame and guilt that most people carry in the sexual arena is, is honestly, it's just crushing. So I want to address that at the end. Is there hope for me, even though I've messed up in these areas? So question number one, why is sex such a big deal? 
Now, it's just sex is one of the common statements that are made whenever restrictions are talked about. It's just sex. It's just a physical appetite. It's just sex. And the phrase that captures the modern view on this topic is the phrase casual sex. Webster defines casual as showing little concern. And so casual sex is something that we should just be able to have sex and then kind of move on, kind of like we had breakfast and we moved on. It should just be a casual kind of part of our life. Now, the idea that we should stop making such a big deal about sex and recognize that it's just one of the many physical appetites that we have, that idea is very prevalent. But for all the talk about casual sex, we seem to have a very difficult time being casual about it at all. I mean, if you read the Bible, sex obviously is a big deal to God. But even if you don't read the Bible, even if you've never read the Bible, and you just observe people, it's pretty obvious that sex is a pretty big deal to us. I mean, there, there is no such thing as a casual viewer of pornography. There are only obsessive viewers of pornography. It becomes a big deal. It takes over. There's no such thing as a casual response to the news of an affair. No one just ever responds casually. Oh, well, well. There's no casual response to the news of an affair. There is no such thing as a casual divorce. Divorces are horrendous. And whenever sexual dysfunction arrives in a person's life, the response and the treatments offered are far from casual. So sex and showing little concern never really go together. We are very concerned about this area of life. So why is sex such a big deal to God and to us? Well, it's because sex is the most eternal event that we can experience physically. It's the place where earth comes as close as it can to heaven. It's, it's an eternal experience, physically. And what that means is it's never isolated just to the time of the act. It's never just a moment of sexual experience. It's always more than that. Every sexual act echoes the history of sex, and therefore what sex means to us and to God. Now, to understand the history of sex, you need to go back to the very first restriction that God gave. It wasn't a restriction on sex. This is the very first restriction that God gave. It's found in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man. Eve had not been made yet. This is just Adam. So he commanded Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why did God put a tree in the middle of the garden of Eden and say to Adam and then to Eve, you can eat everything else but not that tree? What, what was the point of that? Well, God made us moral creatures, and he gave us moral freedom. But moral freedom requires a choice. If you're going to be morally free, you have to be able to choose to do either what is right or what is wrong. If you have to do what is right, or you have to do what is wrong, you're not morally free. But moral freedom in the beginning was not an option that was available to, to Adam and then to Eve without this tree. There was no wrong option in the beginning. So God put a tree in the middle of the garden, a garden full of probably thousands of trees, and put a restriction just on this one tree. It was a moral litmus test. What God was saying by the presence of this tree and the restriction around this tree was, 
If, if you want to honor me and to love me, that's your free choice. You are a moral creature. I've made you with the freedom to make that choice. But if you want to love me and honor me, then do what I ask about just this one thing. And if you know the story, you know what happened. Adam and Eve exercised their moral freedom and chose to eat from that forbidden tree. And that choice affected all of the history that flowed from that point. It radically altered the way God had designed all of creation, really, and then in particular the way he designed us to live and the kind of relationship that he had created us to have with him. And one of the most significant impacts that had was in the area of sexual activity for us as human beings. I want you to notice the before and after effect that this sin had on Adam and Eve in the, in the book of Genesis. Before sin entered into the world, this is what God said right after he created Eve. This is Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Now, this is before sin had entered into the world, before the, the, the choice to eat the forbidden fruit had occurred. God says, for, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, notice, first of all, that marriage is the second restriction that God gives. The first is the tree, the forbidden fruit. That's the first restriction. The second one is marriage. Notice, Adam is to become one in flesh with his wife, not just any female of the species, but he is to make her his wife. So unlike the animals, before we are united sexually, we are to first get married. Now, the rituals vary from culture to culture, but they all include this, this element that's described here, this leaving father and mother and cleaving to your wife or the opposite. It, it's, it's got some public element where I'm leaving home and I'm setting up a new home. It's got this public element to it. Then sex can follow that public decision, that commitment. So notice, two restrictions for two relationships. But they both reflected the same truth, and the truth is this. Love is a moral choice. It can only exist within the restrictions of a moral commitment. It's not just the way I feel about you now. That's, that's just a feeling. Love has a moral component to it. And sex is the highest expression of human love. We all agree on that. And that's why sex must be restricted. If it's going to have a moral component, it must be restricted. Now, notice how Adam and Eve felt before sin. It says they were naked and they felt no shame. What does shame do? Well, shame makes you, makes you want to hide, makes you want to cover up. It puts an invisible barrier between you and others, a barrier of hiddenness and awkwardness and fear that maybe you'll be rejected because some flaw about you will be found out. So you're... you're you're afraid. You're covered. But Adam and Eve felt none of that. And we, we can't even imagine what that would be like because we've all got something that we hope people don't really discover about us or we're, we're, we're ashamed in some way. But they didn't feel that. They were both naked and unashamed. There was nothing between them either physically or emotionally, personally. But then they ate of the fruit. Notice what happened after sin in this area. Genesis 3-7 describes what happened after. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. That's the first thing they realized. 
So they sewed fig leaves together, sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. The first thing they noticed is they were naked. Now, how, how is that possible? How do you not notice that? Well, if you're a parent, you know how. I mean, you've seen your kids get up out of the bathtub and run around naked. They, they, they have any care at all. No sense of awareness that they should cover up and get some clothes on before they run around. You know, if you've had daughters, you've had to tell your daughters repeatedly, stop pulling your dress up over your head. <laughs> right? I mean, they just, you know, when they're little, they, they just, they don't know any better. You don't have to tell an adult woman, hey, stop, that's awkward, stop. <laughs> you don't ever have to tell an adult woman that. It's, it's the little girls that, that don't notice this at all. Why? What's the difference between a child and us? Well, it's, it's shame, isn't it? I mean, the innocence of childhood is reflected in their ability to be naked and unaware. That's what it was like to be Adam and Eve before. But that all changed, and God immediately pointed out to why that had changed. They felt naked and ashamed, and he points just a couple verses later to why. Verse 11 of Genesis 3, and he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? So God says, who told you that you were naked? God knows that no one told them that they were naked. But he wanted to make a point very clear to them and to us who would be reading this. His point is, this, this awareness of your nakedness doesn't come from outside. No, no one's told you this. It, it comes from inside. You, you, you feel this on the inside. Before you were naked and unashamed, but... Now you are both naked and ashamed. You feel the need to put a barrier between yourself and each other and between yourself and me. You feel the need for clothing. His point is that this is, this is going to affect everything. But the primary place where you and I will feel it will be whenever we get naked and have sex. That's one of the, the deepest places that we feel the impact of sin in this world. You see, because in order to have sex, well, you have to get naked. You have to remove the barrier of clothing. And that's not just a necessary practical step. It, it is a powerful statement. You see, sex was designed by God to be the pinnacle of physical intimacy, the pinnacle of there is nothing between us. That's what intimacy is. There's nothing between us. It's, it's as if we were one. Yes, we're still individuals, we're two, but now we're one. There's nothing between us. And it's, it was never designed by God just to be where two bodies come together as one, but where two souls touch and come together. But that's a challenge now. Because there's more between us and another person than just clothes. Like Adam and Eve, we are wearing clothes because we are aware that we really have more to cover up than just our nakedness. We're all ashamed and embarrassed and afraid of being rejected, and we all have reason to be. There's all things about ourselves that we hope nobody really ever knows. We're all, in varying degrees, hiding 
now, both physically and at a soul level. And so the removal of clothes in preparation for sex points to the fact that true intimacy requires the removal of barriers that are beyond the physical ones. It's not never just the physical experience for us. It's always linked to the relationship. It's the physical intimacy and the relational intimacy that go together. But what we've done in this culture is, is we've taken the physical experience and we've removed it from what it means. And the invisible barriers that we, we feel are all rooted in the barrier of shame that sin has put up between us and God. So God says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Is that how you know this? Is that how you, why you feel the need to cover up? I mean, God, again, God knew that they had. But he said this for our benefit, for their benefit, so that we wouldn't miss the link between restriction number one and restriction number two. We cannot sin against God without feeling the impact in the bedroom. Those two relationships are linked because we are moral creatures. We are moral creatures because God is moral. And when we put a barrier between us and him, we put a barrier between us and everybody else. This is why stepping outside of the restrictions of sex, outside of the the marriage restriction, ends up having such a devastating effect on us. Not instantly, but over time. The book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament has a very sobering description of what sexual sin, sex outside of the boundary of marriage, does to us. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 18, don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Where did we hear that? Back in Genesis. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's the kind of relationship that God designed us to have with him. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me build the case that's being made here. Whenever you step outside the restrictions of marriage sexually, it is different than any other sin in the, the repercussions that it has, the consequences that, that come with that. The example that's being given here is a, a man deciding to hire a prostitute and have sex with a prostitute. But you could apply this to really any sexual sin. It doesn't have to be just a prostitute. So we don't get off thinking, well, I don't hire prostitutes. But any sex outside of marriage is what's being talked about here. This prostitution is just the example that's being given. So it's said, if, if you have sex with a prostitute, you're not just having sex and becoming one with her in body. I mean, you are doing that but you're doing more than that. It may just seem like a moment of pleasure for you and income for her, but there is much more going on than just a momentary physical transaction. What you are doing as you are becoming one with her in body, this says, is you are invoking the two will become one flesh phrase that God used to describe the two-dimensional aspects of sex for us. And so sex is not only us and whoever we're having sex with and them, it's also, it also involves God. And what's being said here 
is when you decide to have sex with a prostitute, you're dragging God into this. That's what it's, that's what it's saying. We were created in God's image, designed to be one with him in spirit. We are attached to him in the deepest way possible, whether we know it or not. And what that means is that there, there's just more than, more than just you and the prostitute in the room or you and whoever in the room. God is not just aware of what you are doing. You're dragging him into this. He is united with you when you do this thing. That, that's why, as it says at the end of this, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What's the point that's being made here? The point is you can, you can observe the impact of other sins with a kind of personal detachment. Not completely, but you, you can, it can kind of be outside of you. I'm, I'm observing the sin and the implications of it. But not, you can't do that with sexual sin. The moment you engage in sexual sin, you begin to rip yourself apart on the inside. It's like you are just stabbing your body. You're beating your body. Sexual sin will start tearing you up on the inside immediately. That's because sex is the place where our bodies and our souls touch. And we don't ever just touch bodies without having a big impact on our souls. That's why the consequences of sexual sin go so much deeper. There are consequences of other sin, but sexual sin, that has the biggest consequence. I love the way the message translates this verse, 1 Corinthians 6.16. It says this, this way, there's more to sex than just mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in Scripture, two become one. There's not just a physical component that... There's a spiritual component that goes on when we have sex. That's why for us, as much as some people would like it to be this way, it's never just sex. That's why sex can never be a casual thing for us, no matter how much we try to treat it casually. And also, this is why sex is so amazing. It's the closest experience of heaven that we get here on earth. That's why it's so pleasurable. It, it is one of God's greatest gifts within the restrictions. Outside the restrictions, boy, it tears you up. So that's why sex is such a big deal. Not because God's trying to take all the fun out of the world, but because of what sex is and what it means and what it does. Question number two, then, is this. Where is the line? Okay, so I know the restriction is marriage. I'm supposed to have sex inside a marriage commitment. That line's very clear. But honestly, that doesn't answer all the questions that we have about sex. That's because between us and that line, we've discovered a lot of gray. And there is some gray. I mean, there are sexual questions that the Bible doesn't speak to directly. These, let me just tell you some of the questions that I've been asked as a pastor for 28 years in this area. I mean, I don't get a lot of sex questions because, you know, I'm a pastor. <laughs> but I've, I've gotten quite a few. So these are some of the questions. How far should I go physically with the person I'm dating? What verse in the Bible 
tells me where that line is. Isn't it okay to watch R-rated movies that only have just a little bit of nudity in them? How about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Is that really that bad? Well, here's another one that I'm getting asked more and more. How about oral sex? Is that, is that real sex in God's view? Or is it just intercourse? Is that the only restriction? Can I have oral sex and not be married? What about masturbation? Is that okay? I mean, don't find that word in the Bible. So it must be okay, right? Well, what about porn? I mean, it's, it's just art. It's just an image on a screen. It's not someone I actually know. I mean, I'm not actually being unfaithful to my current or my future spouse when I look at porn. And the list goes on. Those are some of the top ones I'm asked. Now, let me address these as a group by giving you a category for all of these questions. I refer to these questions, most, and most sexual questions are really speed limit questions. You know what a speed limit question is? How fast can I go, right? If you ask, hey, what's the speed limit here? You're not asking so that you can go 10 miles below the speed limit, right? You're asking so you can go right up to that limit. Well, no, actually beyond the limit, right? Because we know we got, what, a 5 to 10 mile an hour buffer? And if we're in a big pack, I mean, just try to pull us all over, right? <laughs> so we, we know. I mean, the goal is to go as fast as we possibly can. That's the speed limit question. And the reason is because we perceive that the real danger is getting caught more than it is getting into an accident. So it's, it's a technical question more than a safety question. And, and this, I say this because this is the way we think of sex. The danger is in getting caught. Not only by other people, but by God. So we want to know technically, where's the, when does God pull me over? And when does he, I'll go ahead. And this was the approach to sex in Jesus' day as well. I mean, this, this is not a, just a modern approach. This has always been the case, long before speed limits. I mean, in Jesus' day, again, everyone was clear, you know, the, the commandment was, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that, that's very clear, but what was happening is, well, I'm not married. So it's impossible for me to commit adultery because I don't have a spouse that I can commit adultery against. So I can have as much sex as I want outside of marriage, right? And then they would come up with excuses. Well, my wife's really not a good wife, so I can divorce her and then have sex with this person that I'm attracted to, right? And it was just going on and on and on like that. So Jesus decided, all right, let me, let me just, let, let's just get real clear on this. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Wow. Now, that's, that's just not men towards women. It, it's implied women towards men, too. Wow, we're, we're all in trouble. Any kind of lust. Men to men, women to women, any kind of lust. What that means is now we're all in trouble. So let me ask you, is there a difference between having sex with a person and just thinking about having sex with them? 
Of course there is. So why would Jesus draw a line that's so challenging? It's because God's restrictions on sex are not to limit your fun, as I said, but they are to protect you. It's about your safety. Because God knows that when it comes to sex, we're on icy ground. So the question isn't, how fast can I go when you're on icy ground? So being here in Southern California, maybe you haven't driven on ice, so I'm just going to show you just about a minute worth of people going just a little too fast on ice. Okay, so let's take a look at driving on ice. You see the size of that wide load that just almost ended that person's life. I mean, that was, I don't know if you've ever driven on ice. Um, I went to college in Michigan, and so I've, I had that, that experience of exiting too fast, and I actually did a, a complete 360, and <gasps> I was alive. I didn't hit anything and went on. One time, I, I actually did end up in the ditch and had to get pulled out. So once you're on ice, the question is not how fast can I go. It, it becomes now a safety question, right? The safety question is, how cautious should I be? So if sex is casual, then go ahead and draw the line at the last possible millimeter, if at all. If it's just about fun and, and there's, real no, there's no real risk, there's, there's no damage that can be done to your soul, then just, just drive as fast as you possibly can. Do as much as you can. You get away with it. But if sex outside of marriage will tear up your soul, and will decimate your ability to form a solid marriage. By the way, there's all kinds of research now right now that shows the more sex someone has before marriage, the more difficult it is to form a real intimate marriage. I mean, it's not Christian research. If it's going to decimate your ability to form a solid marriage, if it's going to trap you in a, f a prison that very few people end up escaping from, then you'd be wise to be very cautious. So how cautious should we be? Well, Jesus said, this cautious. Jesus said, don't let lust loose in your heart. Because once lust gets loose, it has one goal, sex. There's, there's nothing wrong with being tempted by sex. We're all going to be tempted. But, but if you let lust loose, if you let the thoughts go, you're going you're gonna to end up in the ditch. So, for example, how far then should you go with a person that you're dating? You're not married. You're heading towards marriage, but you're not married yet. So wh where's the line there physically? Well, my question when couples have asked me is, 
when do you guys think you're going to get married? And if they say, you know, 10 months, 12 months from now, I would say, well, you may be an exception, but from my personal experience and from couples that I've worked with, if you start kissing and you're really, really self-controlled, you got about six to eight months before you're having sex. I know some of you are more amazing than that, but <laughs> you start kissing someone that you love, you've just pushed yourself down an icy hill and, and you're going down. It's just time. So you start, is, is kissing a sin? No. So a verse in the Bible says, don't kiss. But, you know, if you're dating and you really, you want to honor God with this and you want the best possible marriage that's blessed by God, you want to know all of the joy and, and pleasure and meaning that come out of that, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't get started down that hill until you're ready to start planning some things. So at about the time you hit the bottom of the hill, you say, I do, and then you can have sex. Again, in this world, that sounds like, what in the world is wrong with you people? Like, well, oh, well. So the question is, how careful should you be in these areas? Not how far can I go? And the reason is because lust is never safe stationary. You know, in the, the second book, you probably know that the Fifty Shades of Grey book is the first in the trilogy. The second book in the Fifty Shades trilogy is what? Fifty Shades, oh, no, I'm sorry, was that a trap? I'm not supposed to know that, right? <laughs> the second book is Fifty Shades Darker. Why not Fifty Shades Lighter? Because that's not the direction that lust travels. It always gets darker. So even in a trilogy that's meant to break all sexual boundaries, they recognize this is getting dark now. Lust is a downward pull into the darker and darker, and it will never let you go. This is why porn is so devastating. I mean, there is a push, push in our culture right now to relabel porn as adult entertainment. That makes about as much sense as calling strip clubs gentlemen's clubs. Gentlemen don't hang out in strip clubs. <laughs> Just, I guess, helps them feel better or something. It is not adult entertainment. The reason is that the reason they want to relabel pornography is because pornography is a far too accurate description of what it really is. See, we've been talking about the culture and the pickle juice, and as things change, the way things normally change is, is the wording and the labels change. Once we start calling this adult entertainment, it's more respectable. Pornography, well, that comes from the Greek word, pornographus, and what it means is writing about prostitution. That's what the Greek word pornographus means, writing about prostitution. Pornia means prostitutes or habitual sexual activity. Graphos means to write or visually portray. So porn is produced to have the exact same effect of hiring a prostitute. It's, it's unbridled lust. It is not adult entertainment. And it is addictive. It tears apart marriages. It creates guys, increasing, and increasingly women, that 
don't really want to even get married. Because they can't find a partner like a porn partner. I mean, it just, it's degrading to women, reduces them to an object, and the men that get involved, same thing. If you want to know how God the Father feels about porn, just ask yourself if you're a parent of a daughter, how would you feel if your daughter was in the porn industry? Well, those are his daughters in the porn industry. So it's not where is the line, but how careful, how careful should we be? Last question. Is there hope for me? I know that in this room, a great number, if not all, are carrying some guilt of some sexual sin. Maybe you've been trying to agree with our culture and saying that it's really not that bad and everyone does it, and, but you can't get away from what's going on on the inside, and you feel it. You're carrying the guilt of sexual sin. For some, maybe it's the loss of virginity. You're not married, but you were hoping to get married as a virgin, and, well, that didn't happen. That's not, that's not possible anymore. For some, it's the guilt of an affair and either the devastation it did to your marriage or the fact that it blew up the marriage and has impacts now that continue to ripple out. For others, it's the secret world of pornography that you keep running away from and then you just keep getting pulled back into or walking back into. For some, it's, it's the guilt of, of an abortion that resulted from sex outside of the restrictions. Now, we're all good at pretending like we're okay. But the one, th- one of the things I've learned about everyone is no one's okay. <laughs> everybody's struggling. And when it comes to sexual sin, everybody's wrestling in some way. It looks like we're fine, but we're far from fine. We carry with us the images and the memories that we wish we could get rid of. We carry with us the diminished capacity for intimacy. And we're, we're kind of used to the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. So many people feel like they just need to carry the guilt of their sexual sin just a little bit longer than any other kind of sin. But I, I want you to hear this clearly. What I said earlier out of the 1 Corinthians 6 passage is true. When it comes to the consequences of sin... There is a big difference between sexual sin and all other sins. The consequences are far more devastating. But when it comes to the forgiveness of sin, there is no difference. There isn't certain kinds of sin that Jesus forgives and other kinds of sin. He says, okay, well, I'll get you started, but you're going to have to feel really bad for five years before you're, you're forgiven. No, it's all, it's all the same on the forgiveness side. Consequences, they vary. Forgiveness, that's available no matter what the sin is. Now, don't take my word for it. I want, I want to read you what Jesus said on this matter. This is the story of a woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus. Many of you are familiar with this story, but I want you to listen to it carefully as I read it to you. This is John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 3 through 11. So listen carefully. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
They, they knew of Jesus' tendency to offer mercy. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Nobody knows what he was writing. Some suggest that he was beginning to list their names and sin next to their names. The accusers, I, I think that's a, a good guess. I, we just don't know. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, I think because they had a longer list. (laughs) Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now just imagine you're this woman and what these words must have, must have sounded like and felt like. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. If you are struggling with sexual guilt, I want you to hear those words for yourself. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. When it comes to sin of any kind, but it's particularly sexual sin, it's best to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not the condemnation of other people or even your own voice. Because when other people condemn you, when you condemn yourself, there's no hope in that. It's just them beating up on you, you beating up on you. But when the Holy Spirit convicts, he convicts us of sin so that we might turn to Jesus and find forgiveness and be free. The way you know the difference between conviction and condemnation is condemnation never stops. It just goes on and on and on and on. Conviction, that's just for a moment. You admit that it's sin. You ask for the forgiveness of Jesus. It's done. But then you need to stop listening to your own voice. Because long after God's forgiven me, I still beat up on me. And other people do too. And then I also want to say this, because I, I, I know some people are, and maybe even especially the younger ones are listening, and they're looking at this, and they're saying, wow, so I can sow my wild oats, I can live a life of sexual sin, and then come back, and like this woman, I can be forgiven? That's right, you can be. But do not assume that the promise of forgiveness is worth the long-term consequences of sin, especially sin in this area. I mean, you may know people who have had a, a sinful past in this area, and they're now married, and they've got kids, and everything looks great. You don't know what's really going on. You don't know how many images they wish they could get rid of. You don't know how much of a struggle it's been for them in their marriage in their bedroom because of the past. You, you don't know. You don't want that. Trust me. The consequences are grave. The forgiveness is real, but there are long-term consequences. And then I would say to those dealing with guilt in this area, accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers and the new beginning that comes with it. Notice there's both. There isn't the acceptance without the go and sin no more. Now, none of us can go and sin never again but we can turn from stuff. 
We're moral. We have the ability to choose. We can turn away. Our culture right now is drowning in the devastation of this. Depression rates are up. Suicide rates are up. It's, it's, it's painful. But God granted us sex so that, that we might experience just a little taste of heaven before we get there, but only inside the restrictions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of sex. Not only the pleasure it brings, but for many of us, the children that have come out of that pleasure and the joy that they bring and, and now that maybe their children bring. Father, we thank you for this tremendous gift and your very strong warning. And we live in a time, really it's very, very much like many times, where people are just off the rails when it comes to sexual restrictions. Help us to take your word seriously on this, to experience the protection that you offer through this restriction. I pray for those particular who are dealing with the consequences and the guilt. May they hear your voice of forgiveness. And may you continue to grant power to build something new and better than they ever deserved because of your kindness and your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.